Hello all and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high yield orthopedic surgery topics, which we still kind of do deliver on a weekly basis. But this is our OITE or Orthopedic In Training Exam Review Series. We hope that you all have been enjoying this. We are on basic science now. We have already done trauma and sports. Um, so without further ado, let us just go ahead and jump into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Hello, everybody. Welcome yet to another episode of our OITE podcast uh, or OITE review podcast. And we're still doing some basic science uh, things. So, you know, hopefully if you guys got a good nap last time, uh, hopefully this time you, we can keep you up a little bit longer. Uh, so uh, Spencer or Dr. Will Weinman, how's it going? You ready to get some more basic science done? Yep, ready to get this going. Uh, got my uh, board results back, so everything's all good there. And Oh, nice. So Congrats. Let's, uh, yeah, let's... Uh, get started on this and I'll see what kind of stuff I, I have to offer from a board's perspective and, and we'll get this going. Nice, man. Well, let's, uh, let's just hop into it. I just have kind of the age old question. Uh, what is osteoporosis and you know, what is like, how's that diagnosed, but what, what is this like condition? Yeah, you'll get a lot of patients, uh, in clinic. And I mean, you may let them know like, Oh, you have, some osteopenia, you have some osteoporosis, or or they'll say my primary doctor says I have osteoporosis, and and it's really just an age-related decrease in bone mass, and it's more of a a quantitative decrease rather than a qualitative. They're they're still they still have the um, main components and structure of bone. It's just the amount of bone that they have is decreased and it's diagnosed via uh, what's called a DEXA scan, D-E-X-A. And mainly that's looked at, they look at the uh, lumbar vertebrae as well as the uh, bilateral femoral necks, um, mainly because those are the two uh, big areas of weight bearing and uh, where a lot of our weight actually travels through as we uh, put axial compression on our uh, skeleton. And so they'll look at like lumbar two through four density uh, based on this DEXA scan. And if it is uh, a T-score, they, they look at a T-score, which is uh, comparing your bone mass to a healthy 25-year-old control. Uh, and if your bone mass is 2.5 uh, standard deviations or more, uh, less than the peak bone mass of that healthy 25 year old, you're considered to have osteoporosis. So it, on a test, they're going to say like, uh, negative 1.5 standard deviations, negative 2.0, negative 2.5. Uh, you're going to choose that negative 2.5 standard deviations below the T-score, and that's osteoporosis. You do not use the Z-score because a Z-score is comparing you to an, a, other patients your own age. So, um, you, I mean, you want to have a peak bone mass higher than 
other patients your age if you are getting older, but you don't compare the Z-score, you compare the T-score. And um, some patients might come in and they say, hey, um, what, what, is, what is the cause of my osteoporosis? And you'll tell them, well, we have to obtain some labs. And so what are some of the labs you're going to get from the first go to, to rule out uh, some of the secondary causes of osteoporosis? Yeah, these are, you know, these are going to be things that you're ordering, like you want to get their vitamin D level. So you're ordering like a 25 vitamin D. Um, you know, you're also getting their TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone and their free T4. You want to check their albumin levels, uh, you know, see kind of their nutritional status and overall protein. Uh, check their creatinine, you get a CBC, uh, serum calcium. Um, you can also uh, check their parathyroid hormone. And you're, you know, in reading, a lot of them are saying that you can, once you check the serum calcium, you can also check the, the 24 hour urine and, um, uh, urine, calcium, and phosphorus. So um, those are some of the labs that you can use to obtain to rule out some other causes of osteoporosis. Again, that's going to be 25 vitamin D, TSH, and free T4, albumin, creatinine. You get a CBC, uh, serum calcium, uh, parathyroid hormone, and then you can also do 24-hour urine, calcium, and phosphorus. Uh, and a lot of those are, are covered if you get a, a CMP, a comprehensive metabolic panel will include many of those different um, uh, labs. Now, you, you mentioned what osteoporosis was. What is osteopenia? Okay, so what is osteopenia? It's uh, uh, kind of that transition between healthy 25-year-old bone and osteoporosis. Uh, it's still measured based on the T-score, and it's going to be between that one to two and a half standard deviations below the T-score. So uh, on a question just like the osteoporosis, you're going to choose anything greater than 2.5 standard deviations below the T-score. This one is between one and 2.5, whereas normal bone is anything above one standard deviation uh, below the T-score. That's normal. That's considered normal. And, uh, but then we hear about osteomalacia. What is that? Yeah. So this is a little different than osteoporosis because, you know, in osteoporosis, it's just a quantitative defect, not a qualitative defect, but this is kind of now a qualitative defect. So with osteomalacia, you have a defect of the mineralization uh, leading to a lot of unmineralized osteoid. So that is what osteomalacia is. It's actual defect in the mineral in the bone mineralization. So you have osteoid that is just unmineralized. It's kind of like adult rickets. Um, and, and so, what are the primary causes of this like osteomalacia? Like, why why does this happen? Yeah. So, uh, just like you said, osteomalacia is more of an adult onset disease, and so they've essentially gone through a normal period of uh, bone growth and development and maturing, uh, whereas now they're starting to get less mineralization of the osteoid that is continually produced throughout life. And so some of the primary causes of that are going to be like uh, malabsorption or a poor diet. So if you do not have a good source of vitamin D in your diet or you're not out in the sun, uh, that can result in less vitamin D less vitamin D means less calcium being absorbed. Um, renal osteodystrophy. So those with uh, chronic uh, kidney disease 
are going to have a poor uh transition of the 25 vitamin D into the 125 vitamin D because the kidneys, the location of that 125 alpha hydroxylase. Uh, so they're not going to transition. They're already floating 25 vitamin D in the serum to the actual useful form of vitamin D and also just chronic alcoholism. I mean, if you just think of the chronic alcoholic patients that you see there, usually not out in the sun too much. They have really bad diets. They all develop some sort of liver disease. So they're not even able to make the 25 vitamin D. And so it's just a kind of a downward spiral from there. So uh, again, malabsorption, kidney disease and, and liver disease or chronic alcoholism is going to lead to some of the uh, causes of osteomalacia. Um, and uh, when you look at the radiographs of a patient with osteomalacia, what are you going to see? Yeah, and, and I was just looking some of these up. Um, you know, one of the things you may see is like a biconcave vertebral body. So if you look at a lateral, um, you'll see like a concavity on the superior and inferior part of that vertebral body. Um, other things that you may see is going to be acetabular protrusion, uh, which you can see on on hip x-rays and um and we'll probably get into that more when we talk, when we do our joints talk and we talk about the different lines and where the femoral head is supposed to be in relationship to, um, to the teardrop and whatnot. But acetabular protrusion is one thing. Uh, another thing is you could probably have looser zones and insufficiency fractures and then femoral neck fractures are, are, are something that is common uh, that can be seen in patients that have this osteomalacia or, you know, they cannot, uh, they have a, defect in mineralizing bone. Now, what is the treatment for osteomalacia? Uh, the, the simplest treatment is really to just correct the underlying cause. So if it's nutritional, you just make sure that they have vitamin D in their diet and their body will kind of take care of the rest. Um, you typically treat initially with high dose vitamin D, uh, which I'm not entirely sure what a high dose versus maintenance dose necessarily is, but uh, anywhere along the lines of like 1,000 to 5,000 international units of vitamin D is considered more of a high dose, I would imagine. Um, and you can just get those at any just grocery store or whatever. Um, and then once you, then you check their vitamin D store several months later, and once they're normal, then you just keep them on maintenance uh, vitamin D. Um, for those that have hepatobiliary disease, you give specifically 25 vitamin D because that's the vitamin D that they're not able to produce. And for those with kidney disease or in other enzymatic deficiencies, you give 125 vitamin D, uh, supplementation so that they can have, uh, they just can't produce that end product vitamin D. So now they'll have it circulating through their system to be used. Um, and then we hear of oncogenic osteomalacia. And what is that? Oh, man. Well, on care. Um, but <laughs> uh, if you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think these are is definitely seen in patients that have tumors and that can have an, an overactivity of what's called FGF23. And what this does is it decreases kidney phosphate reabsorption. So, you know, back to med school, the kidneys normally reabsorb phosphate. So you're you're secreting or you're not 
able to reabsorb it. So your urine phosphate is going to increase. And then you also have inhibition of one alpha hydroxylates. So from what you just said about um, with 125 vitamin D and 25 vitamin D, you don't get conversion of 25 vitamin D to 125 hydroxy vitamin D. So the big things to know about this, I remember seeing this on a question at some point, is that you have overactivity of FGF23, which leads to decreased uh, vitamin D because you're not uh, because you don't have one alpha hydroxylase and you also have decreased kidney reabsorption. Uh, so of phosphate, so decreased kidney phosphate reabsorption, and you have, don't have any conversion of one, uh, you don't have any conversion to 125 hydroxy vitamin D. Yeah, um, that, yeah, you're totally right there. And it is, um, it's actually more common in benign tumors than malignant tumors. Um, but it's, uh, just like we have calcitonin, we also have phosphatonin, and phosphatonin is FGF23, or the FGF23 gene codes for a protein called phosphatonin, and um, when you have a mutation in that, you basically waste phosphate, and by wasting phosphate, um, you have reduced calcitriol and then that results in reduced uh conversion through the one alpha hydroxylase um so yeah you're you're totally right with with all of that but it's because of uh, benign tumors rather than malignant tumors yeah yeah for sure and i appreciate you adding that in there i did not no, uh, I did not know what phosphatonin was. I didn't know it was a thing until you just said it. So that just uh, stuck in my mind. I'm going to take a little note about that. So that is. Yeah. Uh, and often uh, tumor removal will uh, result in a resolution of the hypophosphatemia and vitamin D levels. So if they get their tumor removed, then that osteomalacia tends to uh, improve. It's awesome. And, um, and moving forth, I know this is a, a very, uh, this question would just make sense, but I must ask it just so everybody listening knows, um, but is a history of an osteoporotic vertebral compression fracture predictive of another vertebral fracture? Yes, it is. And a vertebral compression fracture increases the risk of a hip fracture five times. And this has always been something that not necessarily confuses me, but frustrates me about how it's said and how it's relayed to people because um, we don't really tell patients that you have a certain risk of a vertebral fracture before they have their first one, but we tell them that they're at a higher risk of one now that they've already had one. And, um, it's, so it's, it don't, don't take it as like, uh, this vertebral compression fracture is the cause of another compression fracture, or it is a cause of like the compression fracture doesn't necessarily increase your risk of a hip fracture. It's the osteoporosis associated with the vertebral compression fracture that puts you at a higher risk for the hip fracture. So it's not like the, 
there's something going on in the spinal column that causes the hip fracture. It's the osteoporosis associated with these patients. So that's the, that's the confusion is, um, it's not necessarily, they're not necessarily correlated with one each other, one, one of each other, but it's when you see a vertebral compression fracture in a patient, then you know that they have enough osteoporosis that puts them at a higher risk for a hip fracture. That's, I guess, what I'm trying to say. So what are some of the other risk factor risk factors for developing osteoporosis? Yeah, so this is going to be things like any white female gender of Northern European descent, um, older, um, and, and any thin or if they're smoking or if they have heavy drinking, these are all things that lead you towards uh, likely having osteoporosis like that. You ever watch that show? The gold, I think it's called the golden girls, right? You ever seen that show? Yeah. With Betty white and you know, everybody like back in the day, I think I used to watch, watch when I was a kid. I don't know why I was watching when I was a kid, but I used to, <laughs> I used to watch when I was a kid, but think of that. And that, that might help you remember uh, kind of the, the, the group at risk for um, uh, osteoporosis. So, you know, thin smoking, heavy drinker, white female of Northern European descent. Um, now, what are some indications to treat osteoporosis? In well, uh, let me let me let me let me clarify. Yeah. What are some indications to treat osteoporosis in postmenopausal women and in men aged uh, greater than fifty? So, uh, any hip or vertebral fracture, and kind of goes to what I was saying before that if you're sustaining relatively low energy falls and you have a hip or a vertebral fracture as a result of that the conclusion without a dexa scan is that you pretty much have osteoporosis like you have weak enough bones to let that fracture happen so you're going to treat any hip or vertebral fracture as osteoporosis in postmenopausal women and men over 50 um any prior fracture plus low bone mass. So if they have that T score after a DEXA scan and it is uh, below two and a half standard deviations, you're going to treat it. Um, uh, obviously any T score less than two and a half standard deviations from uh, the mean, um, you're going to uh, treat that uh, even without a fracture. And then um when you look at their uh, low bone mass and you, you look at something called the FRAX score and uh, the FRAX uh, score is a fracture risk assessment tool. And basically what they look at is um, your age, uh, gender, weight, height. Have you had a previous fracture? Did you have a parent who fractured? Are you a smoker? Do you take... Uh, long uh, chronic steroids? Um, do you have rheumatoid arthritis? Uh, are you an alcoholic? And what is your femoral neck bone mineral density on a DEXA scan? And if your FRAC score um, has uh, a probability of a hip fracture greater than 3% or a probability of any major osteoporosis related fracture like a vertebral fracture, proximal humerus fracture, distal radius fracture, over 20%, you're going to go ahead and treat that osteoporosis. Um, 
So the, the FRAX score, it, what's really nice is if you just type in FRAX into Google, it'll show up as the first or second link. And basically you just enter those numbers in. And if it the algorithm bounces back and they say, hey, they have a 5% risk of hip fracture, you're just gonna go ahead and treat them as true osteoporosis. And so what are some of the uh, ways to treat osteoporosis? Um, you know, one of the ways is, is exercise, you know, and that's like, um, uh, you know, like lifting some like weights, you know, so exercise is one of the ways, uh, another way is calcium supplements. So this will be, uh, about a thousand to 15,000 daily uh, of calcium or as well as 400 to 800 units of vitamin D daily. Those are things that you can just get over the counter. So again, uh, treating osteoporosis, uh, one of the things is going to be uh, calcium supplements, 1,000 to 1,500 daily, along with at least four to 800 units of vitamin D daily. Uh, another way to treat osteoporosis is going to be bisphosphonates, which we'll get into here in a bit. And we'll also talk about some of the other uh, osteoporosis medications, which I think are all pretty high yield and we should probably know them. So uh, and, and without further ado, we can go ahead and transition into some bisphosphonates. So what are the types of bisphosphonates? Just in kind of a big, big umbrella, and then we'll break it down and go further into detail. Yeah, the, the so bisphosphonates are um, becoming much more common. It's one of those that uh, now we need to be asking our elderly patients, have they been on or are they currently taking bisphosphonates because they are, they work so well and they are becoming so much more common. And basically now we have nitrogen and non-nitrogen uh, containing bisphosphonates and they work by separate means, but they have the same end goal. And so how, how do these bisphosphonates work? Okay, so let's let's break this down. So um, bisphosphonates, they bind to the mineralized bone surface uh, and they're going to be taken up by osteoclasts during resorption because I think we, we we touched a little bit about that before and we touched, talked about our um, our spaceship. Well, I think that was our metaphor uh, coming in and how we <laughs> find these different zones. So if you guys don't remember that, go back and listen to that, that episode. But again, so these these bisphosphonates they bind to they bind to mineralized bone surfaces, and they're going to be taken up by osteoclasts during resorption. And so what this does is this results in osteoclast apoptosis. Uh, and because that they bind to the bone surfaces, you know that mineralized bone, they have um, they have lasting effects that are long that are there long after they are discontinued. So this is a big again big kind of umbrella of how these bisphosphonates work. These medications bind to those mineralized bone surfaces taken up by osteoclasts when they come to try to resorb some things and it results in osteoclast apoptosis. So it's death. Um, now, what is the difference in the mechanism of action of nitrogen and non-nitrogen um, bisphosphonates? The, uh, so the nitrogen bisphosphonates they block something called farnesyl pyrophosphate synthetase. And what that does is that leads to a loss of the GTPase formation. And the GTPase is key for cell survival and the ruffled border formation. And 
that's what leads to the cell apoptosis is that the GTPase cannot be formed. And when that can't be formed, it um, kind of cascades down an effect that then leads to ultimate cell uh, apoptosis. Whereas the non-nitrogen containing bisphosphonates are metabolized into a non-functional ATP analog. And that non-functional ATP analog induces apoptosis, but it does not affect the cell formation necessarily. And uh, there might be questions in the future on, on some of these tests about the either which class a certain bisphosphonate uh, belongs to, or uh, they may tell you a bisphosphonate in the question and you'll have to know, is it nitrogen and non-nitrogen? And so the easiest way that I've come to at least separate some of them into my mind is um, I focus on the non-nitrogen bisphosphonates first and I get it. This is weird and silly and you don't have to use this. You can find your own way, but non is three letters. Uh, ATP is three letters. So the non-nitrogen bisphosphonates create the non-functional ATP. Both of those are three letters. And then there's three non-nitrogen containing uh, bisphosphonates. And those are, uh, let me see here. They're, they are uh, etidronate, claudronate, and then another one that starts with a T. I'm trying to remember it off the top of my head. I think it's, um, I'll, I'll pull it up right right now. Three, three, three. This is a yeah, Illuminati right so, here. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> etidronate, claudronate, and teludronate are the, um, uh, I think the, the main ones of the non-nitrogen containing. And um, it, if you think about it, it creates that acronym of et cetera, ETC. And ah. that's also three letters. And so <laughs> oh, another level to it. Exactly. It. <laughs> so non-nitrogen is three letters. ATP is three letters. And then ETC is three letters for et cetera, which is um, etidronate, claudronate, and teludronate. But then the nitrogen containing ones are A to Z. And by why I say A to Z is because the most commonly uh, talked about ones are alendronate and zolendronate. And so they are A and Z. And that those are the nitrogen containing ones. Uh, but you also have the, the other ones in there too. But um, it, it works for me. Uh, but you oh, guys are gonna to remember that they're gonna remember these, it these out. And if, it, if it helps you then then great if if you have your own way of remembering it then uh, by all means let us know and we can pass it along or uh you can just tell your co-residents and and keep it as a as a secret you know <laughs> no but, I think that's uh, a great way but despite how good these medicines are for patients, they really truly do help. And that's why they are becoming much more common. They aren't without their own side effects. So what are some of these uh, unfortunate side effects? Yeah. One is uh, that they always test on, or somebody always asks, asks about it. Are going to be the atypical subtrochanteric femur fractures? 
you could recognize these because they kind of a lot of times will have this um, classic appearance. They'll have a thickened lateral cortex. They'll have a medial spike, and then it'll be some of a transverse fracture orientation in these in these older patients. So that's kind of that atypical subtrochanteric subtrochanteric femur fracture. Uh, they also have jaw osteonecrosis is another side effect. And I and I didn't write this down, but I think it can also have GI side effects. I know we always tell patients to take these on like a full stomach i have to double check that but i believe that is one as well but definitely know about the atypical subtrochanteric femur fractures as well as the jaw osteonecrosis yeah i think it's a uh, a lot of for those that are at risk for uh like GERD and acid reflux they that can really uh make those symptoms a lot worse so taking it on a full stomach or taking it along with a um proton pump inhibitor or some other like Zantac or whatever else with it will, will help. Yeah, for sure. And we spoke about bisphosphonates in the, in the, and the different mechanisms of action, we, especially with the non that's three, again, just a reminder about this three for non and this three for ATP. So it's metabolized into a non-functional ATP analog. And there's three, uh, of them, uh, which is going to be the uh, etidronate, clogenate, and etilogenate, and then that's ETC, which is another three. So, boom, uh, just to reiterate and uh, and reinforce. But moving forth to other medications besides the bisphosphonates, what is terapartide, uh, and and what are some of the risks associated with that medication? Yeah, so uh, terapartide is a recombinant uh, parathyroid hormone. And uh, we, we talked about it in a, another uh, talk with all of the kind of bone uh, physiology and, and metabolic pathways of bone. But for PTH, um, when it is released by the body in an intermittent fashion, it creates bone anabolism or bone creation. Um, Whereas if it's uh, like you have a tumor that is constantly secreting PTH, you have low bone density. And so um, you do recombinant PTH or teriparatide on an intermittent basis and you get an anabolic effect on the bone. Uh, the downside to it is whenever you try and grow something outside of what your own physiology can do, you run the risk of some of those cells going rogue. And so there is a risk of secondary osteosarcoma with teriparatide use. And it's uh, actually contraindicated in patients with pagets because uh, as we'll learn in the future in, in another episode, uh, pagets disease is associated with osteosarcoma itself. And so if you give a second agent that can help increase that risk, it's definitely uh, more prominent in those with Paget's disease. Hello, everybody, and thank you again for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. Again, feel free to hit that subscribe button and tell somebody or two or three about the podcast. Without further ado, we will see you all in the next episode.